what I've seen over the years in the different various assignments, because each promotion or job assignment that I had offered a different layer of perspective. Before I got to that assignment, I would always have a lot of questions of why would they do that or why do they say certain things as far as our management went. And now here I am running one of the largest service areas in the department and, you know, with a, with a large budget. And I, if you'd have told me 23 years ago, I'd be responsible of, you know, a large budget. I'd be like, no, don't do that. I'm not, I'm not the person to do it. Welcome to Crane's Corner, a new podcast inspired by a valued tradition that's seen better times, the art of storytelling. My name's Ed Crane, and back in 1979, I got into the news business. Long before the American media became a liberal leper colony, good journalists told both sides of the story. I still do. But after many moons in this business, on air, in network and local radio and TV, working for others, and most of the time doing what I was told, not what I really liked, I figure it's time to work for me and share what I know, and from time to time, what I think, with you. A lot of information, a bit of entertainment, and I hope, worth your time. Here we go. Welcome again to Crane's Corner. We are coming to you from the Sacramento County, California area. We're going to talk about a local sheriff's election, and it has, obviously, some ramifications, really, for the whole country because of the same kind of crimes that are happening in the Sacramento area, happening all over, the same problems with people, uh, some of them anyway, uh, not respecting, disrespecting the police, not wanting the police. It's an issue, really, of national importance. The only declared candidate for the race to succeed, the incumbent Sheriff Scott Jones is Chief Deputy Jim Barnes. He's been on the job for about 22 years. He's done it all, and he's my guest today. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm excellent, Ed. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So you are the only declared candidate. As far as you know, there's nobody within the Sheriff's Department who is going to want to succeed, uh, or well, willing to run to succeed Sheriff Scott Jones. Jim Cooper, a former Sheriff's Captain who is now a California Assemblyman, is making noise about running, but he's not formally in the race. So right now, it's just you. That's correct, sir. So you've had some 22 years on the job. You've done everything from working at the jail, homicide, investigations, sexual assault. You really have a good idea of what the job entails. Uh, you know, I do. And it, I think if anything, I've worked almost every level when it comes to a rank structure in law enforcement within the sheriff's office. The only two I have not is the undersheriff, which is above me, and current sheriff, which is the elected official. But yeah, I've held every assignment, working in corrections, worked in patrol, was a field training officer, went into investigations where I started with sex assault, and then eventually transitioned over into homicide as a detective and then a supervisor for homicide for roughly three years. And then, you know, did the promotional where I went to lieutenant, where I worked corrections and patrol, then became a captain where I worked a commander of two patrol divisions and a corrections division. And then earlier this year was promoted to chief deputy where my current sphere of influence is over field and investigative services, which is all of patrol and all of investigations within the county of Sacramento. What kind of changes would, would you see yourself making, if any, right away? Well, I think right away, you know, you alluded to it is the, you know, some of the narrative, I would say, towards law enforcement and the profession in itself. And I, I think I think there's some validity there. You know, I, I always say when we see injustices happening from you know law enforcement who make bad decisions and they're held accountable, which we all would expect, you know, there's still some fallout from that. And it's okay. I told everybody who worked for me, you know, it's okay to have the pride to say I don't police like that when we see that you know across the nation. But also have the humility to look into our community's eyes and say, help me understand. And if there's a different way we need to go about doing policing without compromising 
the safety of the community. You know, I'm, I'm always willing to have those discussions and work towards that because that's where we need to be. One of the things that is something you're going to have to deal with, it's it's your best friend and your worst enemy in a sense, and that's technology. DNA obviously is, you know, it's one of the biggest developments in the world of crime fighting. It's warming up cold cases, convicting people much or, or at least get, leading to the arrest of people and maybe the convictions later on. But the other thing is you have everybody's got their cell phone cameras and they're recording almost everything you do, good, bad or indifferent. No, you're right. And, you know, DNA technology as it continues to advance day. When I worked sex assaults and in a homicide, Several years ago, I solved a 35-year-old homicide that happened, I think it was September 29, 1972, which was officially two months before I was born. But it was DNA technology that helped find the person who was responsible and convicted. And at the time, it was the oldest cold case solved in Sacramento County. Since technology has advanced, there's obviously been you know more that have come through that have been older cases. And even the most prolific one that we had recently was the Golden State Killer which was, in my term, in looking and working that case in homicide, I, in my mind, I thought the person responsible was no longer alive. But because of technology, they were able to find the person responsible and get closure for so many people who really lived in fear for decades. And if I can add to what I love about the technology side of it in the DNA world and as it grows and it improves, it's also proven people innocent to where there may not have been the technology when the crime and or the alleged crime occurred and the person was held responsible by a witness ID or now technology is actually proving them to be innocent. So it's actually working both ways. You recently, you, the department, I should say, announced that you are either going to have or now have body cams. Why did that take so long? Well, you know, the, the current sheriff, Scott Jones, was in favor of body cameras, but, uh, you know, trying to explain to everybody listening is there's a lot that goes with it. It's not like you walk into an electronic store, buy it off the shelf, put it on, it works. There are storage capacity issues because of, you know, you need the storage space, thinking of an officer or officers 24 hours a day potentially recording and what that download is. And I look at like the relative is our, our laptops or our phones. How many times have we gotten alerts that said our data storage use is, is almost full? So we had to find technology that would be able to house, you know, that data and that would be able to be retrieved when whether it's a court case and or there was a public records request. And so it took time, and it, then it came down to funding. How was it going to be paid for? So our current sheriff was in favor of it, and in time, the board and, and everything aligned now. So I would say how it took time was the fact that there was some funding issues, some storage uh, capability issues, because we are a larger agency. But once that was all met, then the agreement was moved forward. And so we do have in patrol all our body cameras, which has proved to be very valuable. Um, we have seen... Some great things happening as far as capture the data that, especially in use of force instance, where it shows the justification for the application of use of force. But it's also opened up some ideas of maybe some customer service, you know, where there's some maybe some pitfalls or failures of people working out of frustration. And it gives us the opportunity to really get or, you know, get involved, intervene early and correct that. Not to get too deep into the weeds, Chief, but give me a little idea of how that works. I mean, I'm on my shift. I've got my body cam rolling. My shift ends. If it's been a normal, non-serious incident kind of shift, do I just erase that or is it downloaded and kept in perpetuity or how does it work? So the, how it works right now is anytime that there is a potential for a contact, civilian contact, so let's say a call for service, disturbance, the officer is dispatched. As soon as they are dispatched, they activate the body camera. So on the way there, 
through the interaction. And then they do that throughout the day. And at the end of their shift, they go to a docking station that downloads everything to a server and it's, uh, it's safe. They don't get deleted. There are some you know, potentials, but they're very strict reasons why a deletion may happen. If an, if a body camera was accidentally activated while the officer was using the restroom, obviously that's not something that we need out there, but there are some parameters. But when it comes to a call for service, we don't delete anything. And so when the, when the request comes in from a public or court case, all that video goes. And that is, has been a change because when you as an officer were not wearing that or not used to having that on, you realize every conversation is captured. If you're dealing with an incident and you come back and talk to your your partner officers about what has happened, what is going on, and then there's a lull in time and someone brings up their kid's baseball game, you, we have to be very cognizant that that is all on recording now. So there, there are privacy situations, right? Well, it is, but you know, in the course of their duties, we're serving the public and that's what the public has asked for. And so we, we have to be responsive to that. You know, I always say this is when the community's expectations change of law enforcement, we have to change. And as we have seen when I started, you know, 23 years ago, we didn't have cameras in the cars. And now not only do we have cameras in the cars, we're carrying cameras on our bodies and everything's being recorded. But it does also bring up some potential issues as well. So before called to a house and we show up, and we are to keep that body camera activated. We go into a house, we tell the people, hey, we have body cameras and everything in there is being recorded. And there's a lot of people that don't want that to happen. And so that creates that challenges is if we turn it off and let's say use of force encounter, or you would say turn it off at the request of a homeowner inside of a residence and the use of force encounter happens, then the public is going to ask, why was it turned off? It should have stayed on the whole time. But then there's some privacy issues inside of residences and at the request of people not wanting something recorded. Or did they say, hold on, I want to put on a clean shirt? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be anything like that. And or maybe there's a witness to, you know, an incident. They really want to remain anonymous and it makes it difficult for us to be able to do that. But again, this is where we are. We serve the public and this is what the public has asked for. So this is what we're doing. And we're glad to do it because, again, I think if anything, it's really exonerated a lot of officers where maybe a frivolous complaint would come in because someone was just unhappy being accused of an incident and then we can play the body camera and it shows that a lot of the allegations and or accusations are proven to be untrue or maybe just a different representation of what how that person remembered it so it's really it's been a great tool for us i know that you're a former football player and a fan of the game does this lead to kind of like Film sessions and chalk talks later on. That let's look at what let's look at what you guys did on this call, and maybe we can improve it since you have video oh, now. It, that is such a great analogy, and I'm glad you brought that up because as a former football player and a coach, we used to always the saying was the eye in the sky don't lie. <laughs> so if you say you made a block or missed a block or didn't miss a block, the camera captured it, and it's exactly that. As we would just as they would do as athletes, they'd go back watch it and see how they could have done better, and we utilize that often where the commanders do a great job on the front end by they may see something where policy wise, everything was done within policy, but maybe they were a little, you know, curt in their delivery where it it might've been disrespectful in a way or could have been perceived disrespectful. And so more often than not, the officers will get pulled in and they just hit play and watch it. You'll see the officer's face cringe like, I probably shouldn't have said that, you know? And so it is, it's been a useful tool for us. We're happy to have it. We're glad to have it for the community and, and we'll do anything we can if that helps improve the trust. That leads to my next question, Chief, and that is that 
often when there are incidents, unfortunately, sometimes white cops, black perps, etc., it sometimes seems that not necessarily your department, but but police in general seem to want to hold back information that might actually exonerate them. Case in point, you know, he was he had what looked like a handgun. We told him to drop it. We opened fire. Well, it turned out it was a cell phone, but it didn't look yeah. like a cell phone. Would you would yeah. you see yourself getting this video out to the community earlier? Well, you know, it's it's important that in the beginning and being a former, you know, supervisor of homicide, when we investigated officer-involved shootings, you know, uh, th- there's due process for all involved. When a major incident, especially an officer-involved shooting, and where, you know, it, it results in great bodily injury and or death of someone, there's a lot of emotions, you know, that are really riding there. And I think sometimes when there's a rush or a call from community, release the video, there are things in that video that maybe the family don't even want out there. So there's a fine line of how do we responsibly put that information out there before they can see and so the trust in the public is there. But I'm a huge proponent of, of the transparency side of things. I think it's important we do give the good, bad, and ugly, but I also think it's important what information we put out is what we absolutely know at the time. And with a little bit of hope and understanding that if new information presents itself two days a week or you give the time frame down the road, that it is not perceived by the public as in, oh, you're covering things up or now you're lying to us. And that's not the case. It's just when new information comes through, it's important we get that out as well. But I've always been a huge fan of the transparency. But, you know, and it, what's interesting Ed, is you, you talk to people and if we were to sit 10 people down and say, give me your definition of transparency, it's going to be different of what people would want and how much of it they would want. Some would want more. Some may say, I trust you're doing your job. And so how do you find that balance? Personally, I think the transparency needs to come with the family, the direct family that it's involved is sit down with the family, a community leader, their attorneys and say, here's what we know today. Here's what we have as new information presents itself. We're going to we're going to provide that to you. That's what I'm committed to, because I think it's important. They know all the facts. To use another football analogy, Monday morning quarterbacking, so many people will will read a situation, whether it's an officer involved shooting or maybe alleged allegation of excessive use of force. But they're not there. The gun is not being pointed at them. Their adrenaline is not going, you know, 900 miles an hour. That's something that I, I, I don't know how you get that message across to the public. Well, you don't. I, well, it's, I can't say you don't. I, I start off with this is we have to do a better job. And I say we in law enforcement have to do a lot better job. And there's some agencies that are doing it very well. And then there's some that I think we can all improve on. And I think we should try to improve each day is educating people on what our job is. If I may, I, you know, I try and explain to people, imagine as an officer showing up to work, you go to briefing and in a 10 hour shift, you go to roughly 10 to 15 calls, anywhere from an argument to a violent encounter, to a neglect of a child, to a death, to maybe doing CPR and saving someone's life. You see that in a 10 hour day, times that by four days a week, now times that over a 25 year career. Working homicide, I would routinely, you know, be at a scene for 10, 15, sometimes 25 or more hours processing it where you're looking at absolute death and destruction, which is hard to unsee. And I remember times driving home, getting a text from my, you know, my wife saying, can you stop and get milk on the way home? And the first reaction is, really? You know what I've just been, you know, <laughs> you <laughs> doing? Still and then also, yeah, sitting at the dinner table and imagine the loved one saying, hey, how was your day? And what ends up happening more often than not is law enforcement doesn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I fell into that where I didn't want to talk about it because you can't unsee what you see. And 
I've had good friends, family friends tell me, well, that's what you signed up for. You got in this job. And I said, no, I, I signed up to protect and serve, to see things I will never be able to unsee and encounter things I can never unencounter is something that it psychologically is tough. And I will tell you, it's supported by the statistics in law enforcement and retirement is there's high, higher fatality rate, suicide rate, addiction rate, divorce rate. It's way above the national average. And so I say that is, and how do we educate the public and say, this is what we go through. This is what we do. And I try and find parallels. So when I will get a, a question from a member of the public, similar to what you just asked, I'll ask, have you ever been in a car crash? And more often than not, someone has or a significant event. I go, do you remember afterwards when someone may have said, well, you did this? And you go, I don't remember that. Well, now imagine that in a violent encounter. You don't, you're not always going to remember things, but as time goes on, you might remember certain things. So as things happen so fast, we are training our officers to react. If it's a deadly force encounter or a use of force encounter, we're training them to react, to resolve the situation, and then take control of the situation. And so how do we, how do we bridge that gap with the public? And that, to me, is an ongoing daily message to the community so they do understand. I encourage people, uh, it's tough with the pandemic, uh, to do ride-alongs. Come see what the officers do every day. And, and more often than not, I used to take ride-alongs when I was in patrol and I was a field training officer. And at the end of the day, there were some people that would, I never knew dealt with all this. And it, I felt us as officers, it was our job to be ambassadors for law enforcement to explain it. And there are good rewards, too. There are things that I think in law enforcement that don't get highlighted enough because in our profession, we're humble by nature. People giving a homeless person a ride to Denny's and paying for their meal or ride it to the Motel 6 and paying for their room. I've done it. I've had partners do it. But we don't brag about that because we're here to serve. And so what we do see more often than not is a use of force encounter with technology. It's real time. As you said, cameras are out everywhere. And as soon as it posts, it goes viral and it's nationwide. That's a and great point a you made. Great point you made about the about the ride-alongs, because I've been on a couple over the years as a reporter, and in both cases, nothing serious really happened, but my adrenaline was up waiting for something to happen. And I think for a regular citizen, they're really going to get a feeling of, this is kind of like an e-ticket. You, know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be calm now, and all of a sudden, here come the lights, and what is it? Is it a car accident? Is it a murder? A rape in progress? Yeah, you. Uh, I remember I would always start my conversation with my ride-along. I'd sit in and I would give them kind of, this is the car. I would show them everything, different functions. And I would always have that serious conversation. I go, if I get into a fight for my life or I'm shot and I'm laying on the ground, do everything you can to protect yourself. And the look they would give me is, what do you mean? And I go, that is a possibility right now. In 10 minutes, as soon as we pull out from here, I could be fighting for my life and or killed. And you're going to be sitting in this car and I'm going to need you to get in the driver's seat, get away or protect yourself. And I would talk to them about safety measures. And immediately then I would joke and go, you change your mind. You still want to go. And <laughs> there's pause and hesitation, but people do go. And at the end of the day, they glad they are. And there's a lot better understanding. But I would also ask for feedback, you know, from the ride alongs and ask them, hey, what did you see? Or did you see anything tonight that I may have done or said that kind of you want to, why did he do that? And there was some great dialogue and I learned some things, maybe my body language. They noticed that when certain things would happen, I would do a certain thing. And I thought, wow, thanks for educating me on that. And I think that's important. Tipping your pitches. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. You don't want to do that. We're chatting with Chief Deputy Jim Barnes from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. He is running for sheriff. The election will be held next spring. And we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. First, a trivia question. When was the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department founded? Do you know? 
You want to be ready for what comes next in your life. Whether you're close to retirement or just starting out, we can help with a financial strategy that's tailored to fit your needs right now and going forward. We can help you prepare for what's next. Getting married, buying a home, starting a family, saving for college, dealing with divorce, living in retirement. Set realistic financial goals, maximizing retirement contributions, eliminating debt, investing for the future, reviewing investments. Protect what matters most, income, loved ones, assets. Create your legacy, estate planning strategies, charitable giving. Call Mark Clatterline and Corey Kelly at 209-857-3971. 209-857-3971. Insurance products issued by Principal National Life Insurance Company, except in New York. Principal Life Insurance Company securities and advisory products offered through Principal Securities Incorporated, 800-247-1737, member SIPC. Principal National, Principal Life, and Principal Securities, Inc. are members of the Principal Financial Group, Des Moines, Iowa, 50392. Mark Line and Corey Kelly, Principal National and Principal Life Financial Representatives, Principal Securities Registered Representatives, Financial Advisors. Crane's Corner is not affiliated with any company, a principal financial group. And we're back. And my guest, Chief Deputy Jim Barnes of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. I'm going to guess you know when your department was founded. Well, I know it was around 1850. I don't know the exact the date or month. That hit me. You, you hit that question. I immediately wanted to you know, grab my phone or grab my computer and start hitting research because I should know that as, as now a candidate is going to be running for sheriff. Well, you were right. I know we've, it, we've was it was 1850. It was 1850. And I have to think that it was the gold rush era and was, things were probably getting out of hand. <laughs> and they said, we better get a posse yeah. together. <laughs> and that's how it was found. Yeah. No, that is correct. Times were definitely different back then. So speaking of times are different back then, you got on the job, I think, about 1998. It doesn't seem that long ago, but in a lot of ways, especially technologically, it's light years away. When or was it always a habit of yours to say to yourself, you know, I think I could do this differently or maybe we should try something different. When did, when did these ideas, maybe management and change come into your head? You know, I think it's what I've seen over the years in the different various assignments because each promotion or job assignment that I had offered a different layer of perspective. Before I got to that assignment, I would always have a lot of questions of why would they do that or why do they say certain things as far as our management went. And now here I am running one of the largest service areas in the department and, you know, with a with a large budget. And I, if you'd have told me 23 years ago, I'd be responsible of, you know, a large budget. I'd be like, no, don't do that. I'm not, I'm not the person to do it, but we have brilliant people that do that advise me, which is great. But yeah, the technology is where we are. Some people in our industry resist it, but I welcome it. I look at drones is not always a popular conversation because some people think it's, you know, big brother going to be peeking over the fence and watching every move, but it's not. It is I want to move towards drones clearing a building where there's an audible burglary alarm, a door open, and we don't know who's inside. And I look at how can we put a drone into that room to you know, fly around to check all the open space. And we have used that technology and we have identified people inside. We've also cleared buildings where no one was inside. And I look at it this way is we owe it to the officers to find safe ways for them to perform their duties, number one. Number two, we really owe it to the public to be more strategic in our response. For an example, if let's say a call comes at a park and there's 15 to 17 people fighting for the you know, complainant and saying there's guns and knives, you have every free unit in that area rolling code three, racing to get there to help people and break that fight up. If 
it is a caller who really, because there have been times I've been on those calls where I respond, you know, 15 people, there's bats, there's guns, you get there and there's two people arguing and one person has a tree branch in their hand. And they come to find out talking to neighbors, there was never 15 people there. But if we had a drone overhead right away and to look and say there's two people there, it's not an active fight, slow down, that now slows every officer that is converging on that space and it keeps the, you know, uh, the community safe. Because they're not having to look, you know, you hear sirens, you don't know where it's coming, and you start looking. And I think we can be a little bit more strategic and smart in our response. And technology is definitely the way to get there. And you can come in your space uh, quicker. And so that's that's the avenue I would want to go to is what technology could we utilize that's already being utilized by law enforcement where they're successful and find ways to go after that. Because we do need to find different ways to handle and respond to calls. And uh, technology is is, is the future of law enforcement. I'm told, Chief, that you have some unique ideas, I guess is, is the way I'd put it, on, well, crime and punishment, I guess more, more from the punishment side, rehabilitation side. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up, is I think, a, you know, the idea that I have, and again, it's not new to law enforcement, but it's a new perspective on risk-assessed sentencing. And here's what I mean by that. So currently in Sacramento County, we have reentry programming. And for the listeners, what that means is we have a population inside of our correction facilities that are either waiting to be going to court or they have been sentenced, but their sentence is to the level in which they need to stay at the county jail and not the state prison. So we have reentry programming where we approach it from three different angles, vocational, education, and treatment. And vocational are your trade jobs, welding, construction, automotive, barista program, janitorial culinary. And then you have your education, which obviously helping people to get their GEDs and or advanced degrees, as long as well as counseling conversations of thinking for change. If you grew up in an environment where someone disrespected you, your first reaction was to physically you know, punch them or assault them to defend yourself. There's ways to go about what we call thinking for change, and there's classes in that. And then there's the treatment side, which is like your medical assisted treatment. If there's been drug abuse, there's ways to get people cleaned and sober. So it is a voluntary, you know, for the offender population to participate in it. But we have had such a success where our recidivism numbers are some of the lowest in the nation. And they've been fact-checked by a specialty group that came through and did an audit. And for the listeners, what recidivism really means is if I'm in custody for a crime and I get released, if I don't commit a crime and or in custody for up to three years, it shows what we have done. We've done effective change, and that person did not go back to jail in that time frame. Again, some of our numbers are, are the lowest in the nation, so it's a proven fact this works. So going to risk assess sentencing would be, what is, what do, what is the goal when we arrest somebody? We want to change the behavior. We want to make sure that they don't go out, commit more crime, and make our communities unsafe. How do we do that? Well, in time, we've always done, okay, you've been arrested for a certain crime. There's a lower, middle, or upper term being based off the severity of the crime. And at the end of the day, uh, the probation does a report on the person of you know, what type of propensity would they have for future violence and or actions. And then the judge renders the decision after they've been found guilty by a jury of their peers, a timeline. So let's say five years. So how is reentry going back to that? How it's done is why it's successful is they do risk needs assessment on them and they get down to the true root cause of criminogenic behavior. So let's say as a kid, I was sexually assaulted by a relative, but now I'm breaking into cars to steal a radio because I have a drug habit. In the past, we've done a lot of what we call diversion. Send them to drug rehab, trying to get them clean and move on. But we never address the root cause which causing that. 
maybe I'm using drugs to escape all the bad memories I can never erase as a kid. And so when we get to the root problem of root cause, we put together what I call a game plan, a success plan for that offender to be able to utilize through vocational education and treatment over a certain time that's been scientifically validated. And then it gives them a better chance to be successful when they're released in our community. So if we do it on the front end, do a risk needs assessment on everybody who gets arrested to find out what are the criminogenic behaviors, because what we really want to do is change the behavior and make sure that whatever we're putting back into our communities is, is a changed person who wants to be a contributing member of society. To me, that's responsible reform. There are some people who think nobody should be locked up, and I absolutely disagree with them. And there are people that may not be able to really be successful in the programs because some people out there, believe it or not, there is evil. They wake up to find their next victim, and they will victimize people and continue to do so because that's how they're, you know, they're wired to do that. But I think we owe it to our communities to offer up new ways of looking at reform and how do we do that. And that's something uh, I learned when I was the commander at the correctional facility in Elk Grove. And I thought if we could do this on the front end, it would be successful. Why I know it works is it's already being done, but in, in bits and pieces where the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, and the judge will come together with a, a plan to what we call collaborative courts. So it does happen, but I think if we can find mechanisms and ways to do the risk needs assessment, partner with our probation department to help us with those and put a success plan for every offender who gets arrested and then offer that. Say, if you're looking at five years based off of your sentence, now with this risk needs assessment through these programs, it would take you about 18 months to successfully complete. If you complete them and you're out, we can work towards maybe a suspended sentence or you get one year post-release follow-up, which we do. And then after that, they're no longer on probation. Yeah. And I thought, why would we not do that? Why would we not offer that to people of trying who want to get help and, and put them better successfully in, back into our communities and not just keep them, you know, in a facility for two years and really walk them out the door and shake their hand and say, good luck. I, I think I think there's responsible reform. I think that's the way it should be done. I want to get your take on something. And, and if you're not from California, during the pandemic, the unemployment division in California was given a lot of federal money to help people like gig workers, especially who who were hurt by the pandemic, but maybe wouldn't otherwise qualify for unemployment benefits. And across jails in California, from the county jails to the state prisons, prisoners found a way to fraudulently obtain money through this program. The money was provided on debit cards. And the long and the short of it is nobody knows for sure, but it's it's somewhere north of one billion. And I've heard as high as 30 billion. Is there anything that these various jail operators, whether it's the county jail or the state prisons, could do to keep tabs on what these prisoners are doing? Well, it, there is. Obviously, while they're in a facility, if they're talking to, you know, their brother or friend, you know, the, the jail phone calls are recorded. They're talking to their attorney. They are not. Obviously, they have those privileges, but it, it's tough. You're looking at how many people are who are incarcerated on daily phone calls and what's being done. But I do know that you said there are people that are outside of the state of California who are currently in correctional facilities that were able to apply and receive funding from California. Um, and again, it just, it goes to show sometimes of the sophistication in some of the mindsets of people that they'll, there is no end. If you're incarcerated, you think the last thing you want to do is find a way to commit more crime, but it, it does happen. And that's, I think that for me is another way of showing that there are people out there that no matter what, 
this is the lifestyle that they're going to choose. And we, and we understand that. Again, that's why I believe in law enforcement. That's why we have jobs, and that's to keep our community safe. What is morale like now in light of the, you know, all of the, the Black Lives Matter and the, you know, the, the terrible incident in Minneapolis? It's a tough time to be an officer. It's also a dangerous time to be an officer. Not that it's it's always a dangerous time. It seems to be more dangerous now. How is recruiting? How's morale? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I have a saying that I've adopted over time that, you know, some people wake up to an alarm clock and others wake up to a calling. And when you find your calling in life, and if it's law enforcement serving the public, there's a lot of things that won't derail you or deter you from that. So we still have a good attendance for our academies, which when I go in and talk to them, I'm absolutely, you know, it's inspiring to see that there's youth, there's, you know, young people who want to come into the profession and be part of the change that we need. But I also talk to some community leaders and I say it's really tough for us to uh, find people in our communities who represent the communities we serve when, you know, on maybe a commercial or whatever that calls all law enforcement murderers. That's not the best recruiting advice and, and or tools. I look at it as an, if we can stop yelling at each other, if we can put the microphones down and get behind closed doors and get to work, there are things that can be done. And there's already people in the communities that I'm working with now that work is being done. And it's just, it's the quiet work because I think what happens is when a bad incident in Minneapolis happens with George Floyd, we as law enforcement, we're all anchored by that. And now how do we move on from that? And with the community groups that I'm working with and I'm proud to do these pilot, some of the pilot programs we're working on is the analogy I gave them is we have to be committed to work on this long after this incident has moved on. Because what we tend to do is an incident happens, we come together, we need to do better. You're right, you're right, you're right. No incidents happen and no, no more work gets done. But I'm proud of the work of the people I'm working with right now is we're still having tough conversations. I'm hearing tough conversations that we need to hear and have. And just moving towards that change because we owe it to our kids, we owe it to the communities. And it's important we do sit down and talk the truths about is there over-policing, is there statistical data that shows it. And if it is, let's understand it and identify that here's the data. Now, what are we going to do to work towards it? Not use that data and point fingers and say, see, nothing has changed. We have to be, we have to be committed uh, to knowing that what work we're doing today is going to be better for the future, but what work we're doing today, we may not see the results because it's going to take a long time for us to get there because it's continuous. Chief, history is showing that you can be the best cop in the world, but if you're not a halfway decent politician, you're going to have a tough four years. How do you view yourself politically? Well, that's it. That's the tough challenge I have. I'm not a politician. I I am a police officer, and I I keep my mindset that way. I went through tough times in my career, you know, when I homicide and sleepless nights, and I had to get the help that I needed because there was a movie reel in my head I couldn't shut off because, you know, in the three and a half, four years I worked in homicide, I saw over 300 dead bodies. And there were times at night where those scenes came to life. And it would, you know, terrify me. And so I had a lot of sleepless nights. Well, it took me understanding and, okay, this is what's happening and go get the help. And saw the professionals and they were amazing. And I'm glad I did. And I use, I use those stories now to help other law enforcement people who I know that are struggling. And I, I just think that how we can do better and, you know, if we, I, I guess the politician side is tough. It's a, I talk to my team. It's a strong team that I have. And I tell them, I'm not going to violate my moral compass. I'm not going to do the smear campaigns. That's not what I'm about. I said, let's give it to the people. Talk about public safety. Talk about my ideas, my vision. If this is what the community wants, they're going to vote me in. And at the end of the day, it's what the community wants. And and I'm at peace with that. All right. We're talking with Chief Deputy 
Jim Barnes from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. He is running for sheriff. You're going to have those politicians, the, the supervisors that will be sort of your bosses, the leaders of the community will be your bosses, and you've got the media, you know, always second guessing you. Um, what can we expect, let's say, the, the first term, the first year of your term? I'm going to tell you, the, the amount of energy I'm going to hit the sheriff's department with is is going to be unmatched. We're going to take the sheriff's office to a level it's never seen before when it comes to community engagement um, and technology-driven uh, response. Uh, that first year is really going to be getting to work and recalibrating what we need to do and finding out from our community what do they need. Because each community is different. But what do they need? And we're going to really dive into what I call getting into the trenches and find out what, is, what do we need, put together a roadmap, and start making those steps to get there. I'm confident we'll do that. But, you know, we our slogan with the sheriff's office is service with concern. And, you know, we've heard things of satisfaction surveys that showed, you know, our community really supports us. But at the end of the day, I want our community to be proud of our law enforcement officers because we have amazing people doing the job daily. And when there is, we had incidents where officer-involved shootings happen, and we had an officer-involved death earlier this year. And I remember walking down the hallway just the day after the incident and watching officers tearing up, crying, and loading their vehicles up, going out to provide a service for the community. I thought, man, that is heroic. And I think it's important that uh, we get to brag about the great things that are being done, take ownership of the things that we do wrong, but really be that partner and change in our community. Final question for you. Crime stats, they have not been looking great the last couple of years. Part of that may be because of a lot of unemployment, a lot of people at home, more domestic abuse, things like that. What are what are the crimes that you really would like to work toward bringing down? Well, any, any violent crime. I, I think gun violence is something that I'm proud that we're working on with some of my community leaders in, in my areas that I've worked as a commander, but now still have uh, working with as the chief deputy is. When we have youth, you give the age, any, a, a juvenile who is carrying a handgun because they believe they need that for protection and or, or planning to use it against somebody, we have to start changing that mindset. And, and that's what I wanted to work on is, is gun violence in our streets you know, some of the other issues that are happening, but really finding out from the communities, what is it that they want? I want people to be safe. I want communities to not have to sit at the dinner table, hear gunshots in the background and look at their kids and say, well, sorry, that's where we live. Uh, we got to get past saying that's okay. And I know, and I'm committed with this, I call it the infinite mindset that I've, that I've adopted over listening to some leaders talk is law enforcement's been around a long time. You mentioned it earlier. Sheriff's office has been around since 1850 and there's an evolution. We have to be committing towards working something, knowing that even in my term or terms, I may not see the end result, but knowing that whenever whoever takes over for me afterwards can say, I'm glad those decisions were made because we're better off for it. And that as a profession with a never ending, you know, we call it no goal line uh, because it is constant. Public safety will always have to be here. Law enforcement will always have to be here. I'm proud of our community. We have an amazing, diverse community in Sacramento. And working with all the community leaders already and having those discussions, uh, I'm excited to roll the sleeves up and get to work. That is Sac County's Chief Deputy Jim Barnes. He's running for sheriff in 2022, and he's been our guest here on Crane's Corner. Thank you, sir, so much. Thank you for the time, Ed. Thank you to the listeners. And I just appreciate the opportunity to describe and explain my wife for running for sheriff. Best of luck to you. Thank you, sir. That's Crane's Corner. I'm Ed Crane. If you liked our full-length story, you'll love Crane's Corner news and comment, so be sure to subscribe, like, and give us a positive review. And thanks again for listening to Crane's Corner. I'm Ed Crane. 
Crane's Corner is produced by Multipoint Content Strategies and Hear Me Now Studio, executive producer Jeff Holden. To learn more about what we do or how to support our content, visit edcranescorner.com.